Relying more on continuous monitoring of the government's IT systems is a goal of lawmakers, policymakers, and IT security practitioners, as contrasted with the periodic audits of information assets as required under the Federal Information Security Management Act and guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. A step in the direction of promoting continuous monitoring occurred this past week when the National Institute of Standards and Technology issued a draft of its revised guidelines entitled Guide for Applying the Risk Management Framework to Federal Information Systems, a Security Lifecycle Approach. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of the Information Security Media Group and GovInfoSecurity.com. To get a better understanding of this guidance, known in this parlance as Special Publication 837, that's 800-37, I'm talking with Ron Ross, this highly regarded senior computer scientist and information security researcher and its FISMA implementation project leader. A side note, the Information System Security Association just named Ron its Distinguished Fellow, the group's highest tribute for his leadership in development of influential information security documents. Congratulations, Ron, and welcome. Uh, thank you very much, Eric. It's great to be with you today, and it's great to have the opportunity to talk about some of the really important things that we're doing at NIST and across the government to really um, help uh, make our information systems more secure. I appreciate it, too. First off, why is the revision of SP-837 significant? There's a lot of reasons. I think the obvious ones that everybody's talking about are the continuous monitoring aspects. And, and this really reflects the significant uptake in the threats and the types of attacks that we've seen grow almost exponentially over the past couple of years. The adversary, they're launching more attacks, they're more sophisticated, and we have to have the, the tools, techniques, and, and the types of technologies available and deploy those with the appropriate strategy and tactics to really make a difference in helping defend our system. So the new 37 is intended to recast the previous CNA process, that's certification and accreditation that we've been using for decades, just to reflect the op-tempo of the kind of threat space that we operate in uh, today. There's a lot of talk in Congress about reforming FISMA, but doesn't the revised 837 demonstrate the fact that reforms in information security can occur even without a new law? Well, that's very true. I mean, legislation will come and legislation will go, and obviously at NIST we're charged with implementing legislation when they call on us to do so. But we've been working at the grassroots level for the past three years to do some very important things. The 837 is just the second of five documents that we're working on with our partners in the Defense Department and the Office of Director of National Intelligence in association with the Committee on National Security Systems. And these publications, the first one of which we produced in August of this year, the Special Pub 800-53 Revision 3, which really unified all of our security requirements and controls in one catalog that all federal agencies can now use. So the ability to, to make change is happening at the grassroots level. The 37 document, again, uh, part of the unified framework and part of the partnership with the DNI, the DOD, we're making fundamental changes on the ground here that will significantly impact our federal agency's ability to protect their systems. And we're hoping that the private sector will also choose to adopt some of these standards and guidelines on a voluntary basis to help protect whatever missions or business operations they have going as well, because they're actually subject to the same types of attacks that we are. I was going to get to it a little later, but let's talk a little about this. This publication was developed in cooperation with the Joint Task Force Transformation Initiative, which is, I guess, the group you were just referring to. You are a member of that interagency working group. Tell us about the initiative and why is this type of collaboration important in developing guidance to secure federal government IT assets? 
Well, I think it's a recognition of some very important things that have occurred over the past five to ten years, maybe more in the last five years. There's been kind of a blending of the national security interests and, and those on the economic side. When I first came into the business uh, probably 20 years ago, there was a very bright line between what were considered national security things and what were on the other side of that divide, so to speak. But when you talk about the great dependence that we have on information technology today, not just at the federal level, but state and local governments, private sector organizations, organizations, that dependency and all of us using pretty much the same commercial off-the-shelf products to uh, carry out our missions, build those systems that help support those missions, that commonality uh, really drove us to a point where we had to collaborate. We found that most of the things that we were doing, whether it was in the Defense Department side or on the intelligence community side and the NIST civil side, were we were doing about 95% of those things in common. And there were only a small number of things where we really diverged with regard to the protection of these systems. And so I think having a unified framework shows leadership, Number one, it presents a unified approach to all of our support contractors. So a contractor is not developing three different types of solutions for the intelligence folks, Defense Department, and then the NIST civil side on our customer base. It gives us a unified structure on how to deal with some of these very persistent and advanced cyber threats. It's the right thing to do. It'll make us more cost effective, give us better solutions, and I think it will provide a much better foundation as we go forward in the future. Back to SP-837. It promotes what's called near real-time risk management and continuing information systems authorization through the implementation of robust continuous monitoring. What does near real-time mean? Well, near real-time is a recognition that it's very difficult to do some of the types of things that we know we have to do with security in a real-time basis. It's an attempt to say, let's monitor on a much more frequent basis than we have in the past, but recognize that to get to a real-time state may not be achievable. So the definition of near real-time is a way to kind of increase the op-tempo of how we are monitoring our key controls and our ability to take action on what we find in a more timely manner. But the bigger part of the 837 that sometimes goes unnoticed is we're trying to also change the focus from what I call back-end security to what is commonly referred to as front-end security. And what that means is that we spend a whole lot of time chasing vulnerabilities and trying to fix things after these systems are deployed. And we don't spend nearly enough time on building the right types of products and engineering those products into more secure systems at the front end of the process. So the new 37, by using the six-step risk management framework, which goes through the lifecycle approach, we're now able to put as much emphasis on defining good sets of requirements and controls up front, making sure those are implemented correctly and they're operating as they're supposed to, and then going and finding out after some kind of testing and evaluation process how effective those controls really are and then assuming some level of risk at the end of that whole process. Moving into the continuous monitoring mode then will take us forward in time so as the threat space changes, as our technologies evolve, as our missions change, we can react to those types of changes and look at the security impact, the, the security state of our systems after those changes have taken place. So I think the other big story of the 37 is a tighter integration into enterprise architecture and also into the system development lifecycle process. Tell us a little bit more about this lifecycle approach. 
Well, the life cycle approach is really characterized by the six-step risk management framework, which we developed very early on to try to unify all of our standards and guidelines. And it, it really goes back to building security into your missions and business processes early in the uh, development process. We tend to want to look at security late in the process, after we purchase products, after those products have been integrated. By defining your requirements early, I'm talking about when you're first defining what the core missions of the organization really are and how those business operations are carried out. What are the information flows that are going through to allow you to carry out those missions? And then eventually you get down to purchasing technologies that will actually reflect the hardware, the software, the firmware, and the applications that allow you to carry out those type of activities. But getting back to the enterprise architecture, that's where you first start to define the important requirement. And so having the new CNA process reflect those six steps will really ensure that we get started early, we define our requirements to the best of our ability, and then we can go through the, the steps in sequence in the RMF, the Risk Management Framework, to make sure that the requirements actually ended up in the system and the products that we specified. And of course, there will always be residual risk because we can never get perfect technology, perfect solutions. We will always have to manage risk to make sure that whatever we have deployed and however we end up using that great technology, we're able to manage the risk in an appropriate way. Everybody has a risk tolerance, and that risk tolerance, uh, you have to decide what that is so you can effectively protect whatever missions you're asked to carry out. Obviously, most of the systems exist already. They're legacy systems. How does this life cycle fit into that? That's a very, very common question because I would say the vast majority of our federal systems are legacy systems. The risk management framework is a perfect tool even in a legacy environment. And the way that you can use the framework, you can start with the same six-step framework. You start out with the categorization step, which is looking at the value of information within whatever missions you're being asked to carry out. You're going to go back and you're going to look at what security controls would you select today knowing what you know about the threat, your environment of operations, and what your critical missions are. If you were going back today and you were developing your security plan and you were selecting a set of controls that you think would be the optimal set to really protect against a certain class of adversary, you can go ahead and develop that plan and then you can use that plan to compare against what you actually have deployed into the current system that you're operating. And what that may show is what we call a gap analysis. These are the controls I should be deploying. These are the controls that I actually have deployed. Where is the delta between what I have and what I need? And that would be very instructive to know because that can serve then to drive your plan of action milestones, which is a document that talks about weaknesses and deficiencies that exist, and we have them in all systems. And what is my prioritization or my prioritized approach for filling that gap or bringing it up to code, so to speak? Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate giving us the opportunity. I've been speaking with this senior computer scientist, Ron Ross, for the Information Security Media Group and GovInfoSecurity.com. I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.